From breach of warranty to negligence, the construction attorneys at Sandberg Phoenix are ready to assist you. Sandberg Phoenix's construction team identifies problems and finds solutions before, during, and after the construction process, freeing up your time and providing you peace of mind. Contact Sandberg Phoenix today at sandbergphoenix.com. That's sandbergphoenix.com. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertising. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Build St. Louis, the region's new podcast that captures the very heart of design, construction, and development. And I've added the word design because we're delighted today to feature and to learn from Joel Foos, who is principal of Trivers Architects. Trivers Associates, actually. Joel, we're so excited to have you here today and talk about rehabilitating some of the true landmarks and jewels in our city. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Carrie. Oh, absolutely. I know you and I stuck a lot and I'm grateful for your content as I write for the Construction Magazine and other publications in the region. And we spoke recently about yet another successful effort by Trivers and certainly the ownership group AHM and your other project team members in the St. Louis Redevelopment Corporation, where you saved that six-story vacant office building on South Grand, built in 1912, is that correct, by Nicholas Pellegrin, and it was going to be raised and turned into a parking lot or something? some such thing. And gosh, I just, that's what reminded me to call you and invite you on because it's just another example of how, you know, you've saved something that might've disappeared from the history of the city. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I feel like here in St. Louis, we're fortunate to have a lot of our historic fabric here. I mean, the city has had miles and miles, square miles of historic fabric over the years. And many of those acres have been lost. And so I think it's important that we retain what we have and to reuse those and repurpose those structures really to not only those types of structures will never be created again. That era, that time, that place, that legacy that they were built for better or for worse will not be built again. And so, you know, I think it's important for us to, to be able to retain that as much as we can to build upon that and to reuse. There's always that old adage of the most sustainable approach is to, is to reuse an existing building versus building a new. Here at Trivers, sure. we certainly have made a firm and a history of that in our practice. And so we, we try to find all sorts of ways to creatively reuse existing buildings, no matter from what era. It just so happens that most of them are pre-World War II, 1950 so, buildings. It's so fascinating. And maybe give us an example, if you're comfortable, like, for example, with the building we just talked about, the 1912 South Grand Building, how do you even find out which buildings need to be saved and who's willing to champion them? Yeah, in that case, that was a fortunate set of circumstances. And so it was actually a, a longer winding trail than originally thought. We were actually at the table talking to the building owners, which at the time was SSM and SLU, part of the redevelopment area. Brooks Gedeker, who used to be a part of the Park Central Development and had been a part of SLU Midtown redevelopment for many years now, has always been civic-minded to be able to connect people that need to be connected, should be connected to really further the greater good of our community. And he's always had that mindset. I mean, we've stayed in touch over the years and we were actually talking about another project. And on the way out of that meeting, he pulled me aside and said, hey, by the off chance, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this building, it has a fence around it. It's, it's slated to be demoed in a couple of weeks. Do you know anybody who'd be interested in taking a swing at it? And 
Wow. I was like, yeah, actually, I think I might. That night, I actually remember sitting at my dining room table, as I do on a handful of nights, to catch up on emails and correspondence. And I had sent a note to Kyle Howardson, who had, who at the time had been living out in Los Angeles. And so it was late for me, but not too late <laughs> for him. And I think he responded right away. He said, absolutely, I'd love to take a look at it. And I think I wrote Brooks back, you know, at that point, I said, you know, I think I have somebody. In the meantime, Brooks was making his own connections. He was connecting his own dots here locally with other people that he had worked with. And, you know, long story short, it, you know, the building ended up going to another client of ours that we had worked with in the past, the Komen Group or KDG at the time it had turned into, they were in the midst of their own transition. So Kyle was disappointed, understood that it obviously, he can't, you know, went out on everything, but we had then talked to KDG knowing that we had looked at the building before they had evaluated Restoric. We had talked about ideas that we had had. They had looked at it and it had been determined that it was not going to be eligible for tax credits, which are huge in making projects like that economically viable. And they were in the process of then still in their own transition of converting companies and then understood that maybe it wasn't going to be the best building for their portfolio for them to decide, look, this isn't a good match for us. It's probably not going to be something we want to hang on to. That conversation came up when I was talking with representatives there and I reached back out to Kyle or I had asked them, you know, hey, if I could put you in touch with somebody, would you <laughs> be willing to talk? And they said, absolutely. Um, and I reached back out to Kyle Howerton and I said, you know, looks like they're willing to sell it if you're still interested. And he said, absolutely. So I got them together and I think they had a deal struck in a week. You know, it was probably one of the fastest real estate transactions that, <laughs> you know, they could come with. That's um, awesome. So they were able to put the deal together. And then I think we were working on it in maybe short order after that. And then Kyle had teamed up with Brian Pratt, who used to be with Green Street and was doing his own thing at Ballast Commercial Real Estate. And, you know, our, the entities came together and the rest is history, as, as they say. That's fantastic. Thanks for walking us through that, just as an example of how relationships save buildings. <laughs> I think yes. that's great. You know, I know that the Nicholas, the building we just spoke of, the 28-unit apartment structure now, is just one example of many historic rehabilitation projects that I know Trivers has been a part of. Tell our listeners, if you could or approximate, Joel, how many of these historic gems of buildings that your firm and project partners have redesigned and saved that are functional today? You know, so I think last count, we had worked on over 100 buildings on the National Register, which, wow. you know, I think we actually the Nicholas isn't on the National Register. So that would even fall outside of that as quote unquote historic, but not on the register. And we've been in business for nearly 50 years as a firm. Some of these buildings we've actually done twice. Washington Apartments, <laughs> I know, is a, wow. a project that we renovated twice. Allen Market Lane is a project we renovated twice. My partner, Joe, that he feels like he's been around too long when he starts to renovate projects he's worked on before. So yeah. just kind he's of the nature of it. Them. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're in long enough, that's, I guess, bound to happen. And, you know, most of those structures have been in St. Louis and they can be as kind of background buildings or pedestrian type structures that you would really notice to things that are the utmost prominence, like the old post office or the old courthouse or structures like that, or the St. Louis Arch, for instance. So there's a lot of range in that that we've been a part of, and we've certainly made a history of it and continues today. We have numerous projects that we're currently working on, both in construction and design, that continues I, that. 
I think you mentioned that you had restored a national monument, and I wondered if that was the arch because it's on the Jefferson Monument grounds. Is that the uh, national it, monument? It is. We've worked on four national landmarks, which are, I believe, the old post office is actually a national landmark. The campus at Washington University, that's a national landmark. Tower Grove Park is a national landmark. And the arch is actually a national landmark and a national monument. So we've worked on one national monument being the arch. Technically, the museum, I should specify, not necessarily the arch. When my children were much younger than they are today, when we first started working on the arch 11 years ago, they would tell people that I designed the arch. I had to clarify that that is not the case. <laughs> that was done by Aaron Saarinen, a true right. master in architecture. I just helped work on renovating the museum. So I... Uh... A little exactly. bit of clarification there. <laughs> exactly. You know, I don't know if there's certain recipe for ingredients, quote unquote, that need to be necessary to even approach the idea of saving a building versus if it's too far gone. I, You know, I see just structures as I drive by North St. Louis and they look beautiful on the outside, but I have a feeling there's a reason why they haven't been touched. And I, and I just wondered if you could share kind of a layman's guide or bullet points of, you know, what are the priorities you guys look at that make something salvageable? Well, willingness is number one. I mean, somebody has to be willing to say, this is something I want to embark on. It's not an easy process, especially for projects that have to go through historic tax credit reviews, both through the state and federal. There's a lot of work that goes into it, a lot of tenacity. It's dirty. It's, you know, grimy. It, you know, you have to work with a lot of existing conditions. There's a lot of layers, literally layers that you have to peel back and figure out and work through and surprises that lie underneath that you have to go with. So it's not for the faint of heart. So I think mm -hmm. it takes clients that are willing to understand that it know what it takes and there's value on the other side of that. Of course, it takes money. You know, in sure. some cases, it is cheaper to build new, to tear something down and build something new. It can be very, you know, less expensive. It goes back to the other points of the things that you, that you can't replicate, though. Legacy of place, time you know, detailing that would be impossible to recreate, you know, in, in anything modern now versus a half a century or, you know, a century ago. So, you know, willingness, money, those are big parts of it. I think there's very few buildings that we look at that we just say, no way, not worth it, forget it. I think architects are eternal optimists. We maybe get a little pessimistic as we age, and maybe that's just human nature in itself. But I think we look at a lot of times it takes some creative thinking. You know, we talk about some tenants that are important about restoring and adaptive really reusing a building. You mentioned relationships. That's one of them. You know, thinking outside the box is another that I would put in that same criteria of sometimes you just have to think really creatively on how to do something. And another one we talk about is, you know, working with what the building gives you. No matter how many of these we do, and like I mentioned earlier, we work on dozens of them. And as similar as they might seem on the outside and on the inside, they're not the same. There's always some quirk. There's always some special attribute about a building that makes it very unique compared to any others even built in a similar era. So you have to watch out for that. But I think that's also the stories that get people really excited. 
and you start to amplify that in a way that when the building is complete, you see people kind of nod their head and light up a little bit when you start talking about the story about what it is, you know, that the building is about and how you're able to work with that and bring it back. So it's putting all those pieces together to really make something work. That's magical. You know, when you were describing what the building gives you, I never really thought of it that way. It makes a lot of sense to frame it that way. So many projects you've done, but any that stick out in your mind, you know, recently or a while back that you really had to design around a unique feature that probably happens all the time, but something maybe that had been a completely different purpose and now they're living units or whatever and found this just kind of masterpiece feature within the building and anything kind of stick out in your mind. Yeah, probably the one that jumps out to me, one of the most notable is, is our Woodward Lofts project that we did here. It was completed about five years ago. We've just actually received an AIA housing award for that project. That project was 250,000 square feet, a large building, very deep building. But the way it was designed, it has a series of light monitors, five of them that brought in daylight to an extremely deep floor plate. And a quote unquote typical approach on these types of buildings that are overly deep is that you create a donut essentially out of them. You, you know, you ring units around the outside, can offset your corridor and ring units on the inside, and then you cut out a donut in the middle to, to get daylight to those interior units. In this case, we actually cut out the spaces in between the light monitors. And so it created five individual courtyards and we were able to organize units around each one of those. And then because it was a taller space, we actually infilled unit cross-laminated timber or CLT and create a living space above that and then fill that double height space. So we were able to recreate additional or create additional space within that volume. And now all of a sudden we've created these five individual little communities. So these people right. really look across from each other. We took the roof off of those sections that create some daylight exposure and really create a unique situation unlike any other that we've done. Was that the building that was a printing? Am I got that yes. right? I think you walked me through that one and had the, you put a really funky pool on top of uh, there too. We, we did. There was a section <laughs> of the building. We actually did a portion of the building that was like more conducive to the donut approach. So half of the building is a donut and the other half are five courtyards. And then at the top of the donut is the outdoor pool. Exactly. It's so fascinating to me. And, and I wonder, as you mentioned, there's so many unknowns, I'm sure, when you're considering a project, when you're into the project, even in the construction phase. I think I can imagine what may be a couple of the costliest considerations, but what are the surprises you'd hope you don't find once you get into these projects <laughs> or that or that you know you're going to, but you hope there isn't as much of it? Yeah. I mean, one of the, a couple of those just jump off quickly, you know, environmentally, a lot of these buildings were, you know, built in the early 20th century and had exposures of all types of, you know, environmental petroleum or lead or asbestos, you know, things like that, that, okay. you know, we obviously uh, try to get out of our buildings as much as possible <laughs> these days. And so there, a lot of those buildings hold those, some better than others, certainly, but that's a big component of how poor the soils are and, you know, how much, but a lot of that is, can be dealt with, I would say. The other big component are the windows, you know, historic tax credit windows, anything that's eligible for credits, there is a very stringent criteria through the National Park Service design standards that they look at. They really only tolerate about 
an eighth of an inch in variance in, in the sight lines. So you uh -huh. think about when these were created, there was no consideration for thermal transfer from inside out. It's a single makeup material, single pane glass. A lot of it was flow glass and there really was no barrier. And we do that differently now with insulated glass and thermal breaks in our windows that we're not transferring from outside in. So they end up being a premium because of that. And the biggest focus on credits and criteria that they look at, you know, for those components. So, okay. uh, you know, the rest of them, you know, depending on what the building has, a lot of these more industrial buildings have very little, quote unquote, interior historic context, but have very ornate exterior facades. So you spend a lot on, on masonry restoration, terracotta restoration, cleaning. We're working on a building right now in downtown St. Louis that hasn't, I don't think has ever been cleaned. And you look at pictures from St. Louis in the 20s when a lot of buildings burnt coal as fuel sure. for heating and cooling. A lot of that coal was mined in Southern Illinois, which is very high. It's very soft, high in sulfur, very dirty coal that was used. And so these buildings were just coated in dirt and filth. And this building, like I said, I don't think it was has been ever been cleaned. Wow. So when we, we thought it was more of a brown building um, and then we washed <laughs> it and it's actually this kind of vibrant orange terracotta looking building, you know, after it got a bath. So sounds you know, like those, my car actually. <laughs> yeah, after, yeah, after yeah, harder. yeah. Um, so what, can you yeah, tell us which building can you say which um, one that is, is yeah, it that's, okay to that's talk? the butler building um so okay. that's that's an entire city block in size that's seven hundred fifty thousand square feet so wow. again that building didn't have a lot of historic context you know you have a building like the old courthouse or the old post office buildings like that that have ornate woodwork ornate cast iron columns and plaster work that could get expensive in those mm -hmm. those efforts so a lot of the buildings that we do for adaptive reuse, and I, I want to be clear, there is a difference between preservation and adaptive reuse. And a lot of times there's a, a wide spectrum in how much of the building you are preserving versus how much the building you are adaptive really using to do something else. I'm glad you clarified that too. You know, it sounds like a little bit of a hokey question, but what do you love the most about what you do? I mean, especially as it pertains to adaptive reuse and preservation. You know, uh, I was just reminded of this as I visited my 94-year-old grandmother this weekend, and we used to drive around when we were young, and we would look at old farmhouses, old buildings, and she would talk about how sad it was. You know, we had always joked that, you know, that's a sad house, and um, it kind of became this running uh, thing we laugh about, you know, but the conversation was really about what that used to be and what that was when it was vibrant and contributing member of the built environment. And a lot of this is about that. And it, it's taking something that somebody's forgotten about or disregarded or has just decided that's not useful anymore and breathe new life into it. And I think that can be a metaphor for you know, we practice here in St. Louis, that that can be a little metaphor for, I think, our city. It can be a metaphor for what I find attractive about people who pick themselves up and reinvent themselves and have these transformations that are really inspiring. 
And like I mentioned earlier, it's not easy work and it's not for the faint of heart to do it, but it's really gratifying to see it done. And while a bit bittersweet, because I think there is some memory and some history that you are removing to make a new idea work. If nothing was done, a lot of these structures would begin to decay into, you know, they were completely lost. And so there is a moment that you have to decide that we're going to try to retain as much of this as possible. But again, it's not a preservation act. And most of what we do, it's an adaptive reuse into giving this building a new life for another 100 years. And for being able to do that and be a conservator of resources and time and history, I think is, is really gratifying in the end. And to breathe new life. And I talk about these buildings being sleeping giants and instead of turning away life and being dark and foreboding, they are beacons of light and life again. And that's pretty inspirational. I think it is too. And we've been talking today on Build St. Louis with Joel Foos, principal at Trivers Associates. And we're just so glad you're here. I think it's so inspiring. And thank you for you and your teams who speak life into these legacies and these jewels and keep the story of St. Louis adapting and moving and retaining their original stories. And like you said, just breathing new life into really special parts of our landscape. So glad that you're here with us today, Joel. Thank you very much. Please come back anytime. I'd be happy to. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. All right, Carrie. Take care. At SM Wilson, we transform landscapes, communities, and minds by harnessing the power of relationships. As a trusted partner, we enrich lives by building spaces to live, work, heal, learn, and play. We have built a reputation for more than 100 years as a design, build, construction management, and general contracting firm that puts people first. We're 100% committed to your project. Sam Wilson, Beyond the Build.